0: Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, inflation fears.
1: I want to assure Canadians that we can and we will keep inflation under control.
0: How much further could inflation soar as the cost of living keeps going up? Are high interest rates coming? And what's the biggest threat to the Canadian economy? We have an extensive conversation today with the Bank of Canada Governor, Tiff Macklin. Then, energy wars?
2: We're facing big challenges. As communities, as countries, and as a world.
0: It's time for some big solutions. As Canada promises caps on the oil and gas sector, Alberta pushes back hard. The g- government of Canada has zero chance of achieving its uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction targets without Alberta. But what will the actual cap on emissions be? Does the government have a detailed transition plan that won't divide the country? The Environment Minister Stephen Guibault joins us today. Plus, vaccine revolt all of our members in the house of commons will be vaccinated we respect the the rules is Aaron O'Toole losing control of his own party why are his own mps forming a new group to defend the rights of the unvaccinated conservative mp marilyn gladder joins us with new details of the group she's part of this is question period let's go get some answers Gas, groceries, house prices, cars, the price of everything is going up. You don't have to be an economist to know that inflation is back at the highest levels in 18 years. The question is for how long and what's coming next. These are the questions that keep the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem up at night. His job, the bank's job, is to keep the inflation rate at just 2%. That's the target. But with inflation projected to rise close to 5% by the end of the year... That's getting increasingly hard. So what are they doing? Well, in late October, the bank ended their program to buy bonds and increase the money supply to keep the struggling economy going. It's called quantitative easing. But for most people, the real question is, are interest rates about to go up? What will all this do for your mortgage? To find out more, I sat down with Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada. Governor, a pleasure to welcome you on the program. Great to be here. Inflation. Welcome to the Bank of Canada. Yeah, well, it's a heck of a building. Um, the inflation genie, many say, is out of the bottle again. For the first time in a long time, highest rate in 18 years, it's hurting people. What's driving this? And the real question for most people is, how long is this going to last?
1: Evan, uh, you know, two, two, two things off the top. First of all, every time we survey Canadians, what do we hear? They don't like inflation. They don't like the cost of their cost of living going up and and we know that you know the rising prices we're seeing for mostly internationally traded goods, that is stretching people's ability to stretch their income to pay their bills. Um, you know the next thing I would say is that I do want to assure Canadians that we are going to keep inflation under control. We know what our job is. Our job is to make sure that the increases we're seeing in globally pr- traded prices today, don't turn into generalized and enduring inflation in Canada. And, and we, we have the tools, uh, we have the mandate, and we will be, we have been, and we will be adjusting our tools to bring inflation
0: back to target. The term that economists keep using is this, oh, the, don't worry, folks, this is transitory. OK, it was transitory a little while back, and it's persistent. And now the bank's even saying it's going to persist longer than we thought. Maybe that's the wrong word. What's a better word to describe what's going on than transitory?
1: You know, I'll, I'll take that on board. I think, I think transitory to economists means sort of not permanent. Right. I, I think to a lot of people, transitory means it's going to be over quickly. And, and, you know, maybe I don't know exactly what the right word is, but it's probably something like, you know, transitory but not short-lived. Uh, and and what, what, you know, can I be more precise about that? Um, well, you know, a week ago we put out, Uh, a new economic projection for Canada. And we do have inflation. It's running 4.5% now. We think it's gonna go up to uh, close to five. And then over the course of next year, we think as we get to around the end of next year, it's gonna be around 2%. So that's what we mean by
0: transitory, but not short-lived. Okay, but in June 2020, you were saying, hey, I'm more worried about deflation than inflation. Now we're at 5% inflation. I guess the question is, are you in control? If inflation is global supply chains, global COVID issues, tensions with China, there's a lot of juggling balls that everyone in this building and you are trying to figure out. So people say, well, boy, the governor seems confident, but is the governor in control?
1: There's no question. We've never been through a pandemic before like this. We've never closed an economy. We've never reopened an economy. The good news is, We are reopening the economy. The economy has come a long way back and now we're facing a lot of the challenges of reopening an economy. Uh, We've said for all along it's gonna be choppy, it's gonna be bumpy, and it is. But are we in control? Yes, we're in control. We have the tools, we are using them. Last week we took some important steps to adjust our monetary settings and we're gonna continue to to, to adjust our monetary settings. And the goal here is to secure that complete recovery and bring inflation
0: back to target. People are listening and they say, OK, OK, interest rates that, you know, you know, they say noise, noise, noise. Will the governor have to jack interest rates to stop inflation? Should people people ask me every day? And if you're asking me, you're in desperate trouble. Should we lock in? I don't know. But are, what, what's the message to people? Are they worried that we're about to get into a new era of high interest rates?
1: So I'm not going to give people investment advice, but um, what I what I will say is so last week when we updated our projections, what we said is uh, the time when we're going to likely be considering raising interest rates is probably going to be sooner than we thought. Uh, last week we said it, it's going to be sometime around the middle of next year, and if you want it in months, sometime between April and September. That's that's uh, how we see things right now. Of course. Uh, We're going to get new information. The economy is going to keep evolving. We may have to adjust that. But right now, what we're saying is uh, interest rates have been low for long. They're not going to be as low
0: for as long. Right. My parents would say, I remember 18%, 20% interest rates. But when you're saying, I'm just trying to get some perspective. We're not talking about, oh, we're going to go from the historic lows back into what were, in some cases, historic highs. What are we talking about? Are we talking about going up a point or two, or are we talking about strap in 5 8% higher? Uh,
1: let, let's just think about where we are right now. Our policy right now is at one quarter of 1%. That's as low as it can go. Right. So when we talk about uh, you know, coming to the time considering raising interest rates, we're talking about you know, moving up to still pretty low rates, but off these
0: ultra-low rates. What factors on the horizon are you watching for that may drive inflation? People say, gosh, I'm worried about China. Gosh, I'm worried about we're getting vaccinated, but, you know, the continent of Africa's got 4%. I don't know what's, if there's going to be a fifth wave somewhere else. I'm worried about supply chain issues. What, worry, like, what factors do you watch that may disrupt the forecast? Well, you just named, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we watch all those factors
1: you just named. But, but let me focus in on some of them that we're particularly focused on. So, these global supply chain issues, uh, you know, why, 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 what are they, where are they coming from? Why are they more persistent? Well, we've seen this, the good news is we've seen this rapid surge in global demand for goods. The global economy is recovering. The problem is supply is still impaired. These, you know, there are still production problems in parts of the world because plants have to get shut down because of outbreaks of COVID. Uh, there are shipping bottlenecks. There's problems at ports. There are good reasons to believe that, you know, as the world gets more vaccinated, uh, as investments in logistics take place, and as consumers shift, you know, we've been buying a lot of goods because we can't get services, but as now we can get services. So as as consumers, households start to shift back to Mm -hmm. more services and less goods, you know, those goods, they won't have to get produced. They won't have to get shipped. That'll take some pressure
0: off. It's very rare that the Bank of Canada and you get politicized, but you have. You've seen Pierre Poilievre, the Conservative MP, tweets about you a lot, and the bank. The allegation is that the, quote, printing of money, quantitative easing, the buying of bonds to increase the money supply that people may hear about, is actually one of the key causes, and that rolling it back has vindicated the critics that say, at the behest of the Trudeau government, the Bank of Canada is, quote, printing money, and that's caused inflation. The, of course, the bank is independent from the government. But what do you make of any of those criticisms? And what's the response to your policies are causing inflation? So, first of all, I want to I be very clear. Our policies
1: are guided by achieving our inflation target. These extraordinary measures we took, you know, as you said earlier, uh, over a year ago, at the start of the pandemic, inflation was actually negative. The big fear was deflation. We took extraordinary measures. To help Canadians get through this, support that recovery, and and to to a large extent, it's worked. Obviously, fiscal policy has played an important role as well, and and of course, vaccination policy critical. You can't have a healthy economy without healthy people. Uh, that has been our guide. With respect to quantitative easing, yes, it's a new tool. Uh, it's not the same thing. We're not printing banknotes to buy government bonds. We are creating. Um, settlement balances, which is a kind of central bank money. Um, But the important message to Canadians is quantitative easing, buying government bonds, is just a different way of lowering interest rates.
0: See, I can see your time as a dean of a school is paying off as you explain these things, which is good. Um, There is another issue, which is the housing market. And people are saying, well, low rates are driving crazy house prices. And we've got concerns now about a housing bubble do you have concerns
1: about that we we have for some time expressed concern about housing uh, it, it, it is a vulnerability here in Canada uh, some households are overstretching to to get that house um, you know this is a it was a vulnerability before the pandemic right um, the pandemic has has actually increased demand for bigger houses because We've been spending so much time at home. Uh, people are working at home, children are studying at home, people want bigger houses and, and interest rates are low and that is fueling uh, strong demand for housing. And there is a risk you get into these extrapolative expectations. You know, people, people have a fear of missing out. I, I get letters from Canadians. I get letters from young families. Um, I recognize people are having a hard time. And you know, really the solution to this problem is, is supply. We've got to increase supply of housing. We've been in this for about a decade in Canada, um, and I am pleased to see that there is greater recognition around Ottawa in the provinces that really
0: the solution is we've got to accelerate supply. All right, stay with us, because when we come back, is cryptocurrency the future of money? How do the world's banking systems handle the rise of Bitcoin? And just how dangerous is Canada's trillion-dollar debt? When we come back, part two of our candid conversation with the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem. Stay right here with Question Period. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, it's the hottest topic in business investment. But is it really the future of money? Cryptocurrencies are essentially decentralized networks that create values from something called the blockchain, which is like an international ledger system. There's no central bank. There's no central banker, which is why this has caught the attention of people like Tiff Macklem. He is the governor of the Bank of Canada. In part two of our conversation with him, we wanted to explore the future of money and concerns about the post-pandemic levels of debt and why should people trust the man behind our money. A lot of Canadians are saying our deficit has passed a trillion dollars. We have subsidized industries, so our de- our, our debts are t- passing a trillion dollars. Our deficits are, you know, 280 billion dollars. I'm worried. Deficits are too high, debts are too high, Subnational debts in the provinces, consumer... Do those worry, are, are we approaching kind of the thing that you kind of wake up at night and say, holy mackinac, I'm, I'm worried about this stuff?
1: Um- Look, Canada was fortunate that it it went into this crisis with the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. Uh, From a monetary perspective, uh, we hadn't done quantitative easing back in 08, 09. We had one of the smallest balance sheets uh, among leading central banks. Uh, So on both fronts, uh, that meant Canada could have a full bore response. Um, On both fiscal and monetary policy, there was it, they were extraordinary uh, measures taken rapidly firepower. in scale. There was a lot of firepower, and that has really helped Canadians. It it, it put a floor under this crisis. It supported people uh, that were put out of work through no fault of their own uh, through this crisis, uh, and you know that has been a key to supporting this recovery. As we come out of this, now we're scaling those things back. Uh, last week we we. We ended our our uh, large-scale bond-buying program, quantitative easing. The government is, has, um, uh, the government, uh, most of the government extraordinary measures have expired. There are some certain targeted ones, uh, but those things are getting scaled back. You know, the, the message is, look, when you've got your firepower, you're in a crisis, you want to use it effectively. As things normalize, you want to get, you, you want to withdraw for that so that you don't Uh, um, create a a structural deficit problem. Uh, In the government's own own projections, they have the debt-to-GDP ratio stabilizing, comes down a titch. Um, We still have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in in the G7, uh, and the plan is to stabilize it. So um, look, you definitely want to keep your eye on that, uh, but uh, I don't
0: think we're in the danger zone. I got to ask you about crypto. The whole everybody said, oh, I just invested in Bitcoin or th- this one and that one. And is the future of money crypto? Is that going to happen? Where, is the, where are you on that? And what does it mean for stabilization, security, crime? I, I mean, this is a huge challenge to the classic monetary system. What's your view on, on the future of crypto?
1: you got a lot of big questions, Evan. Um,
0: well, <laughs>
1: how often do I get so, to talk to you, Gov? Yeah, look, it's a pleasure. Um, all the things we think about. So, first of all, um, you know we have banknotes, uh, and we're going to have banknotes, at least for the whole time that I'm governor. Um, they're not going away. Uh, at the same time, we, you know, our economy is becoming more digital, uh, and the pandemic has accelerated that. And so you do have to ask your question. You do have to ask yourself the question. You know, should the central bank give Canadians the ability to have central bank money? in a digital format. Um, we, we've been doing a lot of work. Uh, I, I would say we've been doing a lot of R&D. First of all, doing research on what are the features that you would want in a digital currency? Um, how could we do that? What are the risks? And now I would say we're move, moving from the R and R&D and to the D, more to the development. Okay, okay. now we've, we've, we've done a lot of research. Let's Let's see, could we actually you know, develop, it, it's, still, it's still some ways off. And ultimately, whether we have a central bank digital currency in this country is a decision of the Minister of Finance. Um, but we certainly want to be ready uh, if we come to the view and then the government comes to the view that it would make sense to have a central bank digital Although, currency. Right now,
0: people are buying Bitcoin anyway.
1: Yeah, bit, Bitcoin, though, let's be clear. Bitcoin is not a digital currency. People, people do not use Bitcoin to, to buy things. People use Bitcoin, they're speculating. It's an investment. Uh, and I'll let other people give investment advice as to whether it's a good investment. But it is not a currency in the sense that you and I uh, transact in, in Bitcoin. Well, people are
0: paying for stuff. They're paying me in Bitcoin. I'll buy your house in Bitcoin.
1: The amount of stuff that really gets bought and sold in Bitcoin okay. is very small it's mostly people buying it uh, for speculative purposes. They're buying it because they think the price is gonna go up and they're gonna make money. They're not buying it to buy their groceries or buy their house or fill up their gas tank.
0: Okay, before I let you go, one of the things, I I really appreciate you doing this because people, trust is a big issue in our institutions, transparency and trust. We've seen whole elections be run or populist, have run against the so-called elites and on the lack of trust, so just getting these opportunities to get to know the people who are making decisions I think is actually really crucial, so I do appreciate this. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions that are not on the bank's remit. You're feeling like you need to get your energy up. What is your go-to, and I've asked a former governor about this as you know, what is your go-to playlist song (laughs) that gets Governor Macklin going? Go ahead. Uh,
1: well, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in the 70s. I'm, I'm kind of a classic rock guy. If I, if I had to pick one song, um, um, I, I, some of those classic Peter Frampton songs,
0: I can't. Wow, alive, Peter Frampton. If you, COVID style, you haven't been to a concert, if you could go to one concert right now, what would you go, who would you go see? Let us
1: see, well, the, the last concert I went to was uh, the Eagles. In, uh, in, in Toronto. and wow, okay. uh, it, was, it was a great show. Finally, what's keeping you up at night? Well, um, l- let's go back to where we started. Uh, inflation is 4.5%. Uh, we think it's going up close to 5 uh, That's an uncomfortable place to be uh, when your mandate is 2% inflation. So what really, you know, our focus is really um, secure that complete recovery and bring inflation back to 2%. And, uh, you know, that's
0: number one. Governor, thanks for taking the time. Just a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it was a pleasure. It. Thank you for coming in, Evan. Coming up next, the climate fight escalates. How tough will Canada's cap on oil and gas emissions be? Is it really a war on the fossil fuel industry, as some are saying, or an investment in a green future? The Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guibault joins us next from Glasgow, Scotland. Stay right here with Question Period. the hottest file in the government, literally, the new environment minister, Stephen Guibault, a longtime climate activist for places like Greenpeace, and he's the co-founder of Equitair, is tasked with making sure Canada doesn't drive up global warming. And he's leading the fight with a trinity of promises made at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, a cap on emissions for the oil and gas sector, a stop to public financing for fossil fuel projects abroad, and a push for other countries to impose a global price on carbon. By 2030.
2: If we recognize right now that only about 20 percent of global emissions are covered uh, by a price on pollution, uh, we should be ambitious and say as of right here today that we want to triple that.
0: But there's already a lot of pushback. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole recently released an attack ad dismissing Minister Guibo as a radical who was 20 years ago arrested for a climate protest where he scaled the CN Tower. The Alberta Premier says the caps are just a destructive message to the fossil fuel sector which Jason Kenney believes Canada should actually be championing. We need to be partners in this. Uh, let's sit, sit down and, and figure it out together. Uh, instead we seem to constantly deal with improvised targets ever in, of, of ever increasing ambition. So what are the details of the government's new climate targets? And how can the federal government work with provinces that rely on the energy sector? Let's find out. Joining me now from Glasgow at uh, COP 26 is the Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guibault. Minister, pleasure to have you back on the program. Canada is Thank promising you, these uh, hard caps on emissions for the oil and gas sector. Can you give us any idea what are the levels of the caps? What will they be, and how will they be regulated?
2: Well, the, the commitment we made during the last election, at which the Prime Minister reiterated here in Glasgow, is that we would cap emissions from the oil and gas sector at current level. So people may ask, well, what do we mean by current level? I think we can take it for granted that we mean probably 2022 levels uh, for, to give us the time to, to develop the methodologies uh, to implement this uh, this promise, we will be. In fact, we've. I've already, uh, over the la- over the course of the last week, I've been talking to, to numerous companies uh, and 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 provincial representatives. I had a great chat with my colleague and friend Minister Wilkinson with Premier Fury from from Newfoundland, who you know obviously is a is a large producer of oil uh, uh, as well. So these de- details will will be coming. Uh, We will be doing consultation first, and then we will present the pathway in terms of the implementation.
0: But but this is interesting. You're saying, let's assume, because you know Jason Kenney said I wasn't consulted on any of this stuff. Now you're saying the caps will be at 2022 levels. Are you essentially saying, uh, unless you find new efficiency ways, nothing new can come online because you got to cap your levels at 2022 levels? Does that essentially... Um, mean that it's a cap on emissions, but it's essentially also a cap on production.
2: Well, as, as you know, constitutionally, the federal government has, has no power over re, resource, natural resource extraction, production. This is clearly a, a provincial jurisdiction where, as a federal government, we can intervene is on, is on pollution. And, and the Supreme Court ruling on, on, on the carbon pricing system in Canada was, was very clear on that. Um, I, I understand Mr. Kenny says he hasn't been consulted. Uh, Clearly, uh, Alberta will be consulted, as will all the other Canadian provinces and territories, as well as companies, civil society, Indigenous leadership, and labour.
0: Minister, I spoke with the Saskatchewan Energy Minister in the last number of days. She said, look, these caps on emissions are a way to kill production by another means. She even compared it to the National Energy Program under Pierre Trudeau, essentially saying they'll be so onerous, you're just trying to kill all investment in the industry. Uh, what is your response to her? Well,
2: I, I, I beg to differ. Um, what, what we're doing with, with this cap is, is basically putting a f- framework around uh, oil companies' commitment. Uh, 90, 90% of oil companies operating in the tar sands, in the oil sands, have already made a commitment to be net zero by 2050. So what we're doing with, with this cap is putting in place a f- framework that will define how, how we get there. And we will be working... With, with stakeholders to, to ensure that it's done right.
0: You said tar sands, not oil sands. I know you corrected yourself, but that, you know in your job even those things are political. When Aaron O'Toole is putting out ads calling you a radical whose, job, whose goal it is to shut down the fossil fuel industry, which you know, 10% of our exports are our natural resources, uh, 800,000 jobs depend on it, and he's saying you're, you're basically there to shut it down. What's your response?
2: It, d- it does get confusing for a for, for francophone. Uh, in French, there's only one word for, for, for it. There's, there's or one expression. There's two of them in English. Um, I, again, I mean, no later than yesterday, I was sitting with a number of representatives from uh, from Alberta utilities, uh, including some of them that have made some pretty significant commitment when it comes to reducing their, their greenhouse gas that are implementing those. So we are willing and happy to work with any province, territories, companies uh, who want to work with us in achieving this goal.
0: There is so much concern about the speed of transition, okay? Uh, and what the kind of trend bridge energies are going to be. What is your position as minister on investment in liquefied natural gas? There's billions of dollars on the west coast on this, on LNG. Is that something, Is that do you consider that a green energy? what about nuclear would you consider investment in nuclear a green energy
2: so on on your first part of the question on 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 liquefied natural gas um obviously natural gas certainly is cleaner than than oil but it is a fossil fuel and when burned does contribute to, to to global warming and our goal and and that is a a worldwide collective goal is to progressively phase out the use of fossil fuels, to to replace it with non-emitting or low-emitting technologies, renewables, clean technologies. And it's very interesting to see what is happening in Canada. To answer your second question about nuclear energy, listen, government won't decide which technologies will be winners as part of of this new economy. The market will. Um, and what I said before is that what we're seeing right now in Canada, as well as on the world market, is that technologies like solar and wind are becoming the cheapest way of producing electricity, way cheaper than anything else.
0: Minister, the concern is, though, that you're stacking the deck on the competition. And you know some of the critics will say, oh, here, Stephen Guibault doesn't like liquefied natural gas, billions of dollars. There are many countries who are investing that and say, great, Canada will take itself out of the mix on LNG. They're taking themselves by stranding assets in oil and gas. So they're out of that. They're they're barely talking about nuclear. He's talking about solar and wind. We're essentially handing over our our future economy and our, and our strength here to China or other, you know, Russia, Venezuela, who are still producing this stuff under much worse conditions. And they're delighted that one of the big competitors is getting out of the game. What's the response to that and, and how that could hurt Canada?
2: Just two days ago, uh, Canada organized a roundtable with uh, a number of, uh, of investors, uh, companies, representatives from the insurance industry, uh, who were all telling, and we co, co-, co- organized this with the, the Caisse de et Placement uh, du Québec, which, as you know, is a very large pension fund, in fact, one of the world's largest, uh, who have made a commitment to, 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 to get out of oil uh, in, the next, in the next couple of years just as many other large institutional and private investors have made similar commitments when it comes to, to fossil fuels. And what they were telling us is that we want to invest not billions of dollars, trillions of dollars in, 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 in this new economy. So investors themselves right. are telling us that this is where right. the market is going. This is where the money is going. And what we're doing as a responsible government is following that money.
0: All right, well, uh, the work is ahead, and it's a lot of work ahead, and we'll have lots of time to discuss it. Uh, thanks for joining us from Glasgow. I really appreciate it, Minister.
2: Thank you very much, Evan.
0: All right, when we come back, vaccine revolt. A group of Conservative MPs and senators are forming a new group to fight for the unvaccinated. What does that signal about Aaron O'Toole's hold on his own party? Conservative MP Marilyn Glad, who's part of this new group, joins us to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. So should Canadians who refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine lose their job? Well, that debate remains divisive across the country, and now it's ripping into the Conservative Party. Last week, Quebec backtracked on a mandate for health care workers to be vaccinated by November 15th over fears of staffing shortages. Ontario also announced they will not require a health care worker to be vaccinated. The Canadian Medical Association says these decisions are disappointing and, quote, mark of an ongoing system failure. But the debate has now spurred a group of Conservative MPs and Senators to form a new inter-party caucus. It's called the Civil Liberties Caucus. They want to fight for the unvaccinated, especially those who have lost their jobs over their vaccination status. What does this say about the Conservative Party's own position on vaccines, which has been unclear? The leader, Aaron O'Toole, what does this say about his hold on the party? Let's find out. Joining me now is Conservative MP Marilyn Gladu She's part of this new inter-party caucus. Great to have you on the program. Why, Great to be here, Evan. Why do you need this group to fight for the rights
3: of the unvaccinated? Well, I I think that's a mischaracterization, actually, of what the group is. When we returned to Ottawa, MPs started talking to one another about what issues we were hearing from our constituents. And a number of us uh, identified that there were some common ones. The the job loss that you cited was one of them. But there were others, you know, people upset about the PCR test uh, for double-vaxxed asymptomatic people at the border, Canadians that were concerned about losing their right to enter and leave the country. And so uh, that spurred us to have a meeting. And then from there, uh, others found out about it and were interested to join. And so really, we're at the early days of that how and many, saying how many
0: of you it doesn't there? look
3: like Parliament's going to be sitting anytime soon. And committees may not even begin until next year. And so typically, this is the kind of work that committees would dig into. And we're just trying to figure out what can we do to uh, come with the answers um, to the questions that Canadians are asking. How many of them are there? How how many uh, MPs and Senators are part of this? Well, uh, you know, at the first meeting there was about 15. At the second meeting there was about 30. So uh, it remains to be seen how many will have the time to devote. I think when we see the um, people that are shadow ministers, then they'll know how much time they have to devote to another caucus. And, uh, you know, then the path forward will be to really to talk about the different issues that we want to uh, tackle and, and uh, how we're going to do that.
0: Yeah, I know you, keep, you have said this is not a shot at Aaron O'Toole, but clearly uh, it, sound, it looks like this is a splinter group. Uh, is it, has Aaron O'Toole talked to you about this? Is he part of this? What's his view of this? Because it certainly well, does look all, like I, I, a rift.
3: Let me just lay this to rest. Absolutely. I support Aaron. Everyone that is in this working group supports Aaron. These working groups are a very typical way that we do business. Uh, Whenever there is an issue that, you know, uh, conservative MPs have in common that they want to get on, we have a little working caucus. And so um, Aaron approves of the process.
0: I spoke to a former Conservative Prime Minister, Brown Mulroney on this program last week. He said Mr. O'Toole should boot unvaccinated MPs from caucus. Uh,
3: What's your reaction? Should he? Well, that's really a decision for the leader. I mean, our leader has been clear that we oppose mandatory vaccines, that there are legitimate reasons why people are choosing not to take them. We have a very good vaccination rate. We've been clear that we encourage people to get vaccinated. And so, you know, I think with that, you know, it's his decision, but uh, um, I leave it to him. Marilyn Gladue, are you vaccinated? Uh, I haven't disclosed my own vaccination status um, for medical privacy reasons. We've spent a lot of time fighting for people not to be discriminated on based on their medical state. Uh, Obviously, on November 22nd, it will be obvious to all uh, what my vaccination status is. So,
0: Marilyn Valley, you won't disclose your uh, vaccination status, but Canadians across the country, they're being asked when they go to a restaurant, a gym, a hockey game, send your kids to school, your kids have to be vaccinated why is it so difficult for a a Conservative MP to disclose something that Canadians are being asked to do all the time and governments have asked our children to do to go to school this has not been seen as an invasion of privacy it's been seen as an act of public safety
3: well uh, I'm not against obeying the rules I'm upholding all of the rules that are in place but the reality is people are being forced to disclose and the question is you know what is next And what kind of discrimination will face people on other medical issues? We've talked about these things in Parliament before. And uh, certainly on November 22nd, I'm happy to disclose my vaccination status. I'm not in any way ashamed of it. I've been very clear that I support vaccination and I encourage people to get them. But this is an airborne infection. You know this.
0: This disease has killed 5 million people globally. 28,000 Canadians are dead. The economy shut down. I know you... The Conservatives keep saying you support vaccinations, but you won't disclose. You say, where does it stop? Like, did you have a problem when the school system is asking if our kids have got their, their polio vaccination?
3: Well, I think, you know, in terms of the risk, uh, people that got polio, many of them died and many of them were crippled. And that is right. not the same frequency of uh, risk that we see with COVID-19, although COVID-19 has killed people, as you rightly pointed out. It's wor- what and so what I think we need po- to do po- is sorry. make sure killed- we have solutions to keep people safe. And there are many and reasonable accommodations for those that are not vaccinated. I just, I just have to be clear.
0: You're saying that COVID is not as bad as polio? Like COVID has killed significantly more people in a shorter time than polio did in Canada. I'm not. I'm not trying to compare tragedies, but, but the medical. I'm just trying. I I I know you're an engineer. I'm just but,
3: receiving the information from medical experts that talk about the relative risk. I'm not a doctor myself. So, but they're. But they're you know, medi- But they're on saying
0: on the, the president of the Canadian Medical Association has said mandatory vaccinations work. Every medical association, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada are saying these mandatory vaccinations are working like I'm if you're listening to the data wouldn't you support making sure
3: everybody's vaccinated well I think there's uh multiple sources of data out there and that's part of the work of this caucus is to take a look at all of the different data and sort through it and and come to uh, what the reasonable solutions are to ensure that everyone is safe and everyone's freedoms are protected Okay,
0: but you say you will disclose your vaccination status on November 22nd. Do you know how many will, how many conservative MPs will do the same?
3: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I listen to the media try to find out who is and who isn't, and I know that there are a couple that have medical exemptions and there are a couple that haven't disclosed, but I would imagine we're talking about a handful of people, um, a very small number. All right. Well, listen, I
0: really appreciate you joining us, conservative MP Marilyn Gladwell. Always good to have you in the program.
3: Hey, good to see you, Evan.
0: Okay, after the break, deep divisions from climate change to vaccines. Can the federal government pitch a climate change plan that won't divide the country? And can Aaron O'Toole hold his party together as a breakout group supports the right of anti-vaxxers? The Calgary mayor, Jyoti Gondek, joins us next as a special guest in The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. So it's a two-front war in Canadian politics right now. On one side, you've got the climate battle. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promising hard new caps on oil and gas emissions while he was at the UN Climate Summit, still going on in Glasgow, Scotland. But he gave no details on what they will be. Already, you have the premiers of Alberta and Saskatchewan claiming this is an attack on the West. But the truth is the oil and gas industry itself is already promising to get to net zero emissions by 2050. So what's the reality of the politics around this issue? Meantime, the vaccine battle is raging, tearing a rift open in the Conservative Party with a new group of MPs there defending people opposed to vaccine mandates, as we saw earlier in the program. So how can the federal government hit these ambitious climate targets without dividing the country and how can aaron o'toole deal with the vaccine mandate issue without dividing his own party to answer all that the scrum is here joy snapier is ctv's ottawa bureau chief marika walsh a political reporter with the globe and mail in ottawa and our special guest is the newly elected mayor of calgary jody Gondak. great to see all of you good morning Mayor Goddard, let me start with you on the climate issue. And I know you want to declare a climate emergency in Calgary, but the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenney, has called your position, quote, peculiar. He's also said that Justin Trudeau is sending bad messages to uh, the province with the uh, appointment of Stephen Guibault and the promise to put a, a cap on the oil and gas emissions. What's your view on this cap on oil and gas emissions?
4: I think the most important thing to recognize here is that the climate emergency is a real thing. And we have producers and major corporations who have made commitments to net zero by 2050. And so what we're trying to do as a city is simply be in step with the rest of the world. And I think the relationship between our province and the federal government has been strained to say the least. So I'm very much hoping that our new council can start to build some bridges and really attract the type of capital and talent that we need in our city.
0: Uh, Joyce, oil and gas sector counts for about, what, 26% of Canada's overall emissions, so it's a big part. Canada ranks as the G7 country with one of the worst climate performances in terms of emissions. But what are you looking for from the Trudeau government after they've made all these new promises? What details are missing?
5: Well, what details are missing is pretty much uh, all of them. Uh, How do we get there? Um, You know, in the last few years, we've all heard uh, the prime minister saying uh, that this is a climate crisis, but we've never heard him, you know, extend a hand to Alberta, uh, to the sectors uh, that are the biggest emitters. What are you going to do? How are we going to transition as a country? Um, You know, we are a country of natural resources, so it seems that he he, he says very good words when he goes to these international summits. He gives good speeches. You know, uh, young activist Greta Thunberg says it's a lot of blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be nasty, but sometimes it does sound like that. We are in Canada, and we cannot reach a consensus even here. Uh, when the prime minister speaks about that, he never speaks about the sector that would be the most right. impacted. We're talking about 500 to 800,000 jobs.
0: Okay, so, Marika, I mean, Justin Trudeau says, okay... The the industry saying they want to get to net zero by 2050. We're going to put a regulatory framework around that. We're going to discuss uh, the the targets. We're going to discuss how to get there. I know we've bought a pipeline. We've got a rebate for the backstop on the price on carbon. What's missing from their plan, though, uh, as they as Joyce says, as there's concerns about the pain of this transition?
6: The big question, Evan, is going to be implementation. And the Prime Minister has chosen Stephen Gilbo, who is a prominent activist but who struggled to implement and execute under his last government mandate in Heritage. So he has a big task ahead of him. And it's easy for people in Ontario and Quebec to look at the oil sands as Canada's climate problem. But it goes far beyond that. It goes to our transportation sector. It goes to how we build, the suburbs, the cities that we live in. And so this is the decade. These are the years ahead where we are all going to start feeling the changes that the government is promising if they actually implement. And so it goes to how they're managing forests, how they're managing the oceans, how they're managing the transition to electric vehicles. All of those questions, all of those big policy promises that the Prime Minister has put out there on the world stage and on the election campaign are now what Stephen Gilbeau and um, natural resources minister Jonathan Wilkinson actually have to execute on and it's also going to be when Canadians really start to feel those changes to see those changes in their daily lives okay now as that's become obviously
0: that's going to be a huge discussion but mayor let me get back to you mayor Gondad the other issue vaccine mandates uh, you, you saw provinces like Ontario and Quebec say they're either not going to institute vaccine mandates for healthcare workers like Ontario or they're going to roll them back like Quebec um, these are dividing the conservative party as well what is your view on vaccine mandates and and what would you like to see
4: well when it comes to vaccine mandates and proof of vaccination our city council has been very firm uh, in its previous format and uh, continuing on into new council we have said that mandates are necessary because that's how we get out of this pandemic that's how we start to achieve some sort of recovery we all know that vaccines work it is important to understand that this is a collective responsibility And if you allow some members of the public to get a free ride and not get vaccinated, we will not come out of this.
0: Well, but then healthcare workers, Marika, are, are not getting them. But I just want to go to the this is filtering now up to conservative politics here here in Parliament Hill. A new group of conservative MPs are forming to defend the rights of people who have lost their job because they're they won't get vaccinated. What does this tell you about Aaron O'Toole?
6: I think, Evan, what's stunning is to see that more than a month after the election campaign ended, this is still the anchor hanging around Aaron O'Toole's neck. It's, it's um, really had a drag effect, and the shadow it has cast from the election is so long and I think unexpected in how challenging it's been for Aaron O'Toole to manage. No matter what Marilyn Gladue says, starting this caucus makes it more difficult for Aaron O'Toole to manage his own internal caucus, his own internal party politics, and it makes it easier for the government to actually do what it wants on issues like climate because the Conservatives are so sucked in on this issue where the majority of Canadians are not on side with them on that they so far have been silent on these big political issues and and issues of daily life in Canada that people are seized with.
0: Yeah, Joyce, by the way, we invite Aaron O'Toole on the program. I think every week since the uh, election, he has not come on. He's been basically invisible. I think he's taken six questions on vaccines. He didn't comment on the COP26 uh, conference, except to say that Mr. Trudeau has appointed a radical. He released that video about a radical in the environment. Now he's got this new group. Joyce, what does it tell you about what's going on in that party and his leadership right now?
5: Well, you know, I would ask what leadership? if this is happening in his party, and if these, uh, these runaway MPs and, and, and senators are doing this, uh, it's because he never put his foot down. Listen, we listened to him throughout the campaign. Marika was there as well, all our colleagues. We asked him questions about vaccine mandates. His answers were always vague. Well, this is what happens when you're the leader, but you refuse to lead. Uh, you've got to lead. You, you heard Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister, on your show uh, a few weeks ago saying, you know, this is what you do when you're a leader. It's not always easy and you can't always be nice and you shouldn't be vague. They're on the wrong side of history, period. OK, uh, I got to leave it there. Uh, Mayor Gondek, Joyce and Marika, uh, first
0: of all, great to have the three of you on the program. Uh, that's question period for this week. But before we go... We want to say goodbye to a dear friend and family member here at the CTV family, Francois Damour, or as he's known, Frankie Love. For 39 years, Frankie has covered the news that has shaped this country. Many of the stories you've probably watched over these many years, from across Canada to places like Afghanistan and China, all of those stories, many of them have been crafted, shot and edited by Frankie. He's decided to hang up his camera and stay home a bit more with his family. Good luck to his family on that. Just kidding, Frankie. He's a legend on the Hill, beloved for his passion, his humor, his quality of work, and commitment to telling stories that impact all of us. Frankie, from the whole CTV News family, we will miss you. Congrats, brother. Enjoy the next chapter. And we will see you back here next week in seven short days, and I'll see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. Hug your loved ones. Don't take that for granted. See you soon.